there's this sense that because the church and because the evangelical movement has invested so much of its time and energy in fighting the culture wars and in sort of going after its enemies, that it has, in the process, abandoned the core Christian tenet of loving your neighbor and of turning the other cheek and of praying for those who persecute you. Tim Alberta has covered American politics for years, writing everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to Politico to The Atlantic. Along the way, he's developed a special focus, translating the American right to the rest of the country. His 2019 bestseller, American Carnage, traced the turmoil within the Republican Party that led to the rise of President Trump. And his new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, explores American evangelical Christianity in the age of political extremism. Ever since Donald Trump rose to power in 2016, many Americans have been asking the same burning questions. Why do evangelical Christians, who've long defended family values, embrace Trump, a serial liar who's been repeatedly accused of sexual assault and other unchristian behavior? How has Trumpism transformed evangelical Christianity? And how has that transformation shaped American democracy? Lucky for us, Tim Alberta has some answers. This is especially personal for Alberta, since he's an evangelical Christian himself. And as both a believer and an astute political observer, he can help us understand one of the most bewildering forces shaping the 2024 election. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So what was it like to grow up in the evangelical church? Well... It's interesting. Everyone spent half of their Sunday in church and then their Wednesday night in church and their social lives and their conversations and family dynamics all revolved around church. And the way that we talked at home, the media that we consumed, everything, I mean, everything, it revolved around our identities as Christians. My mom used to call me the family evangelist because I was always inviting friends of ours, like neighborhood kids, friends from school, teachers, whoever, like I was always inviting them to church. And the strange thing is that then as I grew a little bit older, I started to become very disillusioned with the church itself, even as I remained quite enamored with the figure of Christ. Where did that disillusionment come from? What was your evolution like on that? You know, the closer you get to an institution, I think the more familiar you become with its underbelly and you see things and observe things, witness things that feel a little bit off, or maybe they feel a lot of bit off. And so that was me in the church. And I started to realize that not all Christians were wired like my mom and dad were. And so much of this book is about your father and about the legacy of your father, who I know you lost recently, and I'm sorry to hear that. Um, Thank you. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, so my dad was a fascinating and really original character. He was raised in a really dysfunctional, broken home. His father was an alcoholic. His mother had attempted suicide on several occasions. It was a mess. And nobody was religious. 
So anyway, my dad sort of broke away from all that and went on the straight and narrow. And he winds up marrying his high school sweetheart, my mother, and they embark on these incredibly successful careers in New York. They had parties and friends and money and they were living the life. And my dad was completely miserable because he felt like there was something missing in his life and he couldn't figure out what it was. And he went looking for it. And my dad went to this church one day, kind of on a whim, and heard the gospel for the first time. And then and there, he went down to the altar and he prayed to receive Jesus. And then a few months later, he is praying and he's feeling God calling him to give up his career and to go to seminary. And as he would tell us for the rest of his life, he felt the spirit of the Lord in the room with him, like a wind swirling around him. And he said to himself in that moment, that's God, that's God ordaining me to preach. And I, of course, have spent much of my life basically framing this binary of, okay, either this thing did happen and my dad truly did experience this and God is exactly who he said he was, or my dad is insane and should have been put in a straitjacket. But there's very little middle ground, at least the way that I've always considered it. So, you know, on that note of there being this sort of binary, I understand you are still a practicing Christian. And I, I'm curious about how, you know, given your upbringing and also given some of the disillusionment that you described earlier and sort of the critical eye that you've brought to this religion and this movement, how your own spirituality has been affected by that. So it's interesting when you're a pastor's kid, you feel like, or at least I felt this way, like you're kind of riding your parents' coattails a little bit spiritually. It's funny, in many ways, I'm jealous of people who don't find Christ until much later in life because I feel like they have had to put themselves through a certain series of steps to get there. I didn't necessarily do that when I was young. But when I was in college, that insecurity really started to gnaw at me. And so I kind of undertook a journey of my own where for a couple of years there, I not only was reading everything I could get my hands on, but I think I took four religion courses at MSU. Two of them were on Christianity. And then I took a class on Islam. And then I took a class on Eastern religion. And I wanted to just understand. I wanted to question. I wanted to challenge. I wanted to scrutinize. And that was the best thing I ever did because I came out of all of that with an intellectual grounding and reasoning that I was lacking previously. Um, it prepared me to live my life in a way that I otherwise wouldn't have lived it. So that brings me to politics, right? Because one of the things that your work on this has done is really to unpack the way this evangelical movement has transformed American politics. When did you start to think about politics as something you were interested in? Really late and really by accident. Um, I was just a middling student and had no real particular passions. I loved to read and I loved to write, but I had never necessarily connected those two. And then one night, a professor at Michigan State named Eric Friedman, he came in and gave a presentation to our class about an internship program he had covering the state capitol in Lansing. And I signed up, not even knowing what I was getting myself into. And 
that was where I really found my calling. I, I realized really quickly that this was something I was good at, something that I was fascinated by. The power, the personalities, the ego, the money, the corruption, all of it was just like I became really fascinated and hooked on it. And uh, so I covered state government for a little while in Lansing. And then I got my break when I was offered an internship in Washington with The Wall Street Journal. So, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about you as a journalist is that you've really helped to shape and help to translate how Trump rose in the GOP. I mean, you wrote this best-selling book in 2019, American Carnage, which gave us this inside look into the making of the modern Republican Party. Can you summarize briefly sort of what you learned about what happened within modern conservatism that allowed Trump to rise in the way that he did? I mean, it's a great question. And obviously, you know, I've got young kids and these are the questions that our children are going to be dealing with. Yeah. I really believe that. And in fact, that was really the driving reason behind my writing that first book was I just thought, you know, like my sons are going to try to make sense of this one day. And I want to at least play some role in helping them to make sense of it. I think what's really interesting is that in politics, it's all about timing. The man or the woman has to meet the moment. And I think Trump met the moment in a way that wouldn't have been possible even four years earlier, certainly not eight years earlier. Like Donald Trump never would have won the Republican nomination in 2000, mm -hmm. right? Or even in 2012. But I think that by the time 2016 comes around, you've got these massive cultural shifts around same-sex marriage, around gender identity. You've got drug legalization. Suddenly, all of those cultural things that had been kind of low simmering for decades are suddenly sort of exploding. And there's a transformation happening in real time. And then politically, you've got Barack Obama, the country's first black president, and you've got demographic change happening. And, you know, this country is suddenly becoming unrecognizable to a lot of people who are kind of pining for the old days, the days that they knew where their jobs at the plant were safe, where their neighborhood looked the way that it did 30 years ago. And I don't want to speak in code here. Like, let's be clear. There is absolutely racial resentment and xenophobia as a part of this equation. And so into that moment steps this strong man character who says, I can stop this. I can keep the wolves at bay. I can protect you. And I can bring you back to the country that you once knew and the country that you idealize. That was the genius of Make America Great Again, right? When he said that, and this was the reporting I did all across the country for a number of years, and I know that you've done it too, Charlotte. When he said that, people heard it in their own ways, and it was a stroke of political genius. I think, obviously, it's also extraordinarily dangerous because of the way that Trump was and continues to prey on the insecurities and the anxieties and the fears of people and to pit Americans against one another to turn everyday partisan disputes into like a proxy for good versus evil and to find so much of your identity wrapped up in partisan politics and in American national identity is ultimately self-defeating for the follower of Jesus. 
So your book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, uh, really kind of helps us all understand what some people perceive as a core hypocrisy at the center of evangelical Christianity in America, which is that this community that is supposedly so fanatical about family values and living according to Christ's word seems to have pledged its allegiance to Donald Trump, who is a serial liar, a racist, a womanizer. Did reporting this book help you understand why? Yeah, it did. I mean, when people become fearful, when people become anxious and insecure, I think they naturally turn to someone who they see as capable of protecting them, or at the very least, someone who's willing to fight back on their behalf. Now, let me just say, like, theologically, there's really a choice for Christians to make throughout the ages when it comes to feeling threatened, feeling endangered. You can reach for the sword or you can reach for the cross. Now, when you reach for the sword, that is often in terms of seeking political, cultural, social power, military power, the power of the state to protect you and to punish your enemies and to sort of subjugate those who would attempt to subjugate you. And I think what I'm trying to get at is that many American evangelicals have become so frightened, have become so panicked, have become so fearful that they have reached for the sword. Hmm. And the sword is Donald Trump. The sword is MAGA. And at some level, Trump promises them a protection and a safety that justifies that transaction in their minds even though that safety here is fleeting and ephemeral and ultimately not a part of the thing that they are supposed to be seeking in the grand scheme of things. More with Tim Alberta on how American evangelicals will shape the 2024 presidential election when we come back. So you observe that for American evangelicals right now, it seems that their national identity has almost eclipsed their faith identity. That's a paraphrase from one of the early chapters in the book. Why is that? So America is a good thing. Like, I'm glad that I was born here. I'm grateful that I live here. And, and that we have some of the freedoms that we do, right? I think there are too many, far too many Christians who... Think of America as a nation that is in covenant with God, and they come to think of America then as not just a nation that's sort of been blessed by God, but that actually it is a country that is sort of ordained by God and that must be defended, and that fighting for America is fighting for God, and fighting for God is fighting for America, that they are almost one and the same. And that you come to view threats to America as threats to the Almighty himself. 
So this is, I think, really core to understanding this, and I just want to dig deeper. So why do they believe that? So I think this ties into this conversation of Christian nationalism, which is something that a lot of folks are are now hearing about, reading about, writing about. I think it starts with this idea that we were not a country born out of just Judeo-Christian ethics and Judeo-Christian virtues, that we were conceived as a Christian nation, that this was in no way, shape, or form meant to be a pluralistic, multi-religious society, that it only became a nation because of its covenant with God. That will be taught to you by people like David Barton, who is the pseudo-historian who is incredibly popular and influential with the religious right. There is an entire cottage industry built around advancing this notion that we're not just a nation that is sort of informed by Christian ethics. We are a Christian nation, or at least we once were. Hence the Christian nationalist crusade of today, because the Christian nationalist movement is really organized around this idea that what we once were has been taken from us. And that time is running out to reclaim it, that basically the founders created a Christian nation and then the secularists mobilized and they organized and they kicked God out of the schools and they started indoctrinating our children and generation over generation, God has been systematically removed from American society. And that is why we have all these struggles we do. So this gets to another thing I really wanted to dig into, which is this idea of a community that perceives itself to be deeply endangered and under threat. Where does this sense of persecution come from? So I think a lot of people struggle to understand how could it be that Christians who are still a majority in society— white Christians who still have their hands on the levers of so many of the institutions in this country, how could they feel persecuted? How could they feel under siege? I think a lot of it is the historical predictions and almost prophesying of this idea that you will one day be persecuted for your faith in this country. I mean, if you grew up in the evangelical movement or in the fundamentalist movement a little bit farther back, that was like really bedrock to the conversations that you had. If you listened to Focus on the Family and James Dobson, or if you were a part of the moral majority with Jerry Falwell Sr., any of these affiliated organizations and their movements and all of the education curriculum that they disseminated, that was really a core message that Christianity was under threat in this country and that especially if you think about the 1970s, you know, Roe v. Wade, you go back even further to the Supreme Court ruling banning prayer in public schools. Pornography becomes, you know, ubiquitous. The drug culture is out of control. Divorce rates are skyrocketing. And suddenly you have all of these evangelical Christians looking around saying, yeah, they are coming for us. Our way of life is is soon to be pushed to the margins. We are being ostracized. We are being marginalized. But the question for me comes back to this idea of, okay, let's pretend that you really are being persecuted, right? Which in the American context, you're not, right? We know what persecution looks like. Right. But let's even pretend that that's what's happening here. The question again becomes, how do you respond to it? Hmm. Do you reach for the cross or do you reach for the sword? And again and again and again, what we see 
is that these people are reaching for the sword. They are not following the biblical blueprint laid out in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus' disciples were rounded up and killed by the state in mass. And how did they respond to it? They responded to it by praying for the people who were killing them. So there's a clear biblical teaching about how we are supposed to respond to the culture when it turns against us. And we, in the American context, are doing the exact opposite. So I want to take a step back and ask, you know, about two threads of this that I think are really important in the broader political context. One is conspiracy theories and the other is race. I want to start with conspiracy theories. What did you learn in your reporting about the ways that these conspiracies that actually have very little to do with the Bible— you know, I'm talking about, you know, belief in the deep state. I'm talking about belief in QAnon. I'm talking about baseless conspiracy theories around the validity of the 2020 election. How many of the people that you spoke to believed in this and why? Hmm. Too many. I mean, we've seen pretty consistently for the last few years, the people time and time and time again, who are the most likely to believe that the vaccines are dangerous, that QAnon is real, and that the election was stolen, and that violence is justified. Like, it comes back to white evangelicals time and again. In my own reporting experiences, you run into a lot of this. I mean, it's hard to quantify, but like, it's not a small minority. The why of it is fascinating and frustrating to me, because I think at some level, if I'm being honest, there is something about a belief in a higher power that sort of opens the window wider for someone to embrace something that may not be logical or reason-based. Now, I marry that to what I said at the outset about my own intellectual journey to truly find Christ and also the fact that some of the great thinkers in the history of the world, I mean, Francis Collins, the former head of NIH, who, you know, mapped the human genome for crying out loud. I mean, he is an evangelical Christian. There are a lot of very brilliant people who are not the caricature of like this rube who stumbled into believing in Jesus and therefore that makes them gullible. Like, I don't want to insult the intelligence of Christians in that way, but I do think that there is something about that idea of by believing in a higher power, whether it's Jesus, whether it's any religious tradition, are you inherently a little bit more susceptible to suspending logic, suspending inquiry, suspending scrutiny, and buying into something that might otherwise not pass the smell test? I think there's probably something to that. But I also think that there's something in the American evangelical psyche that is particularly vulnerable here. And it goes back to this idea of they're out to get us, we're under threat. And I think like once you start to really buy into this idea that there is a deep state or that the government is being weaponized and that there are organized forces out there coming for you and coming for your faith, then yeah, and I think it makes sense that you, like logically almost as a next step, that then you start to grab for things that help you make sense of it. So the same people that want to banish Christianity from public life and who want to shut down your churches, they also want to control you with a vaccine. That's their belief. That's their worldview that you're describing. Yes. yes. Like, yes. And you can see how that progression starts to kind of roll downhill. 
And this goes back to your question about conspiracy theories, because, listen, I understand that it might sound utterly fantastical to the everyday, unbelieving American, this idea that an eccentric rabbi 2,000 years ago was conceived of the Holy Spirit and became fully God and fully man and traveled for three years preaching that there was a new kingdom at hand, but it was not in this world. And then he was executed by the state of Rome, and then he rose from the dead three days later and started a movement that would change the course of human history. I understand that that sounds utterly fantastical, right? Here's the problem. It's either true or it is the most dangerous conspiracy theory in the history of the world, right? It can't be in the middle. It's got to be one of the two. And the problem I have in dealing with so much of this radical fringe that is attempting to hijack the institutions of American Christianity is that they are advancing both the gospel of Jesus Christ and these conspiratorial notions, and the one bleeds into the Hmm. other, and you are compromising the integrity of the witness of Jesus Christ, which, in my view, is not a conspiracy theory. It is, in fact, a true thing that happened, and it is the greatest gift that this world has ever received, but it loses all of its credibility, all of its beauty when you're pairing it with this nonsense. And I think that is the thing that hurts the most, is to see people who profess to believe in Jesus sully their witness by going along with all of these other things that just are not true and don't matter in the grand scheme of things. You know, this book is very specifically about white evangelicals. Um, Obviously, there are tremendous numbers of Christians and evangelical Christians in this country who are people of color. You know, a lot of non-believers listen to some of what's coming out of the white evangelical movement, and they think to themselves, this is racism parading as Christianity. So how much of this vehemence within the white evangelical movement about politics is informed and motivated by racism? So this question of for what percentage of this movement is religion just a vessel, just a vehicle that contains all of their cultural and social and political grievances, and they can sort of dress it up in Christianity as a way of advancing those grievances and as a way of sort of advancing their identity politics. I think the answer to that is like an uncomfortably large percentage. I don't think it's a majority. I don't even know that it's a large or significant minority. But what I found pretty consistently when I would talk to pastors around the country, including pastors who have endured some terrible things inside their churches, where their churches basically like just fell into civil war over COVID, over George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, over the election and January 6th. Like I've been at churches that have turned into mob scenes. Um, Even in those settings, what I found really interesting was every single time when I would ask this question, like what percentage of your congregation has become like truly radicalized where 
you know, like you can't even deal with them anymore because they're just not a part of the sort of Christianity that you're trying to practice here. And every single time when I would ask that question, I would hear no more than 15, 20%, right? Now, 15, 20%, that might sound like a small number, but we are talking about a movement of tens of millions of people. It's a lot. It's a lot, right? Like if you think that 15% of people who identify as evangelical Christians harbor hateful and or racist and or xenophobic and bigoted, vitriolic, antagonistic attitudes toward the world around them. And that is a large number of people. And it is a huge problem. It is not just a huge problem for the health and sustainability of a pluralistic society, but it's a huge problem for the credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Tim, we've learned so much from your reporting and from your digging into some of these really deep and really important questions about what people believe and why and how these belief systems really affect American politics and are shaping our understanding of our current political moment. I want to take a really quick look at some aspects of your own everyday life. This is a segment that we like to call The Last Time. (laughs) Okay. I understand you've got three boys. When's the last time you broke up a fight? (laughs) <laughs> Last night. What was it over? Um, one was just harassing the other and wouldn't leave him alone. And you know how sometimes like little kids, the one just wants to do his own thing and the other turns it into a game that like he won't let him do his own thing. My five-year-old, he would not let his seven-year-old brother be just to play. And so they wound up wrestling on the floor and I had to send them to timeout. Um, when is the last time you went to a baseball game? Um, we took my boys to a Tigers game in August. Um, when's the last time you saw something that reinforced your faith in God? Um, a couple of nights ago, I was putting down a bed of rocks in my backyard and there was an absolutely stunning pink and purple sunset. And I told my sons about King David's reflection on the sky being the work of God's hands. So that was just like two nights ago. Um, when's the last time you were surprised by something that Trump said? June of 2015. (laughs) Like like you're done being surprised. It's (laughs) it's hard to be surprised anymore. Okay, finally, when is the last time you ate Detroit-style pizza? Ooh, not that long ago. There's an amazing pizza chain in the Detroit area called Buddy's, which is like the original Detroit pizza. I have not been there lately, but there's an offshoot that's almost as good called Jets. And we got Jets just a couple of weeks ago, and it is really, really good. Amazing. Tim, thank you so much for coming on our show. Charlotte, it is really my pleasure. Uh, I'm grateful that you would have me on. And uh, I wish you and all of your listeners health and happiness in the New Year's. You can find Tim Alberta's new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So please send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week.
Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Michael Erlinger and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>